0: News, weather, traffic,
1: money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. If you're a chess player, then you know the online chess world is very passionate. Let's just put it that way. When people go online to play at places like chess.com, there's a lot of commitment. There's a lot of chatter. And right now, the whole online chess world at chess.com has been talking about a new chess bot that was just introduced, but has become hugely popular. And we are going to introduce you to why Mittens that's the name of this chess bot. has become so popular and it's causing such a stir. Joining us now is Kenneth Regan, a professor of theoretical computer science and engineering at the university of Buffalo. Kenneth, thank you for being here.
2: Thank you very much for having me on.
1: Well, how big and competitive is that online chess world?
2: Well, it has grown in, in ways that I might not have imagined except for the pandemic. Uh, it has grown to be a- as popular as other esports, and certainly accepted within the esports community.
1: So maybe you could explain to us, there's a lot of chess bots that people like to play with, right?
2: Right. And it's funny, you know, my main vocation in the chess world is competing, ag- is competing against those bots in the sense of detect people cheating with them. But actually playing them is not something I've considered.
1: Really? So your job is to try to figure out where it's going wrong?
2: Well, try to figure out where humans might be going wrong by uh, somehow gaining access to those bots during uh, actual human competitive chess games.
1: So Um, is cheating a big deal in the chess world, too, online?
2: Unfortunately, it is. Yes. Uh, And this was my main vocation during the pandemic was as a consultant to various sites. I should say as a disclaimer that I've consulted with chess.com, but I'm not employed or compensated by them.
1: Right. Okay. So I understand that there's chess bots and you can choose to pick, you know, kind of what level you want to play at. Why is this one particular bot, why is mittens causing so much discussion?
2: Yes, there are several factors. Um, now, I, the second disclaimer I should say is I've not been involved in the creation of that or any other chess playing program. I'm on the opposite end, but from my work, I can give some very good, educated guesses. So, right. the first, the first reality is that in a chess position, often there are multiple good moves and good moves that have different characters. And I'll make an analogy to American or Canadian football, where you might choose a running play or a passing play. And the moves that you can choose have different personalities, different characters. One might be attacking, like a forward pass. Another might be more defensive, running the ball. Um, So long as you avoid a big error, like a fumble or interception, you can play very well. Um, so apparently, what I would gather is that mittens has been created, tailoring a certain style of play, like you know, I classifying moves by character, and maybe playing in a way uh, that first crouches back, so you know, gives you a run and then pounces.
1: <laughs> I love these sports analogies that you're using for chess here. My understanding is also that Mittens kind of trash talks opponents like, and this is a, a chess bot. This is like using artificial intelligence, kind of trash talking opponents while playing chess.
2: Yes, that's right. So I played against Mitten myself and at a couple of the things that were said. I'd actually seen them before in news stories. Uh-huh.
1: Really? So is is Mittens learning as it goes along to get better at kind of mimicking some of this behavior?
2: Well, that's actually a good point. Does does Mittens adapt to how you play? And that's beyond my actual knowledge. That would be a real AI feat. Uh, if, If Mittens could, say, after playing five or six games against an opponent, get a sense of that opponent's style. There are AIs that classify people that way.
1: Right. Now, this thing has become so popular, though, here, Kenneth, that it crashed the website. It crashed chess.com because they had more people playing, 40% more in any month than in the company's history.
2: Why do you think that is?
1: Wow, Why do you think that is?
2: Yeah, I I don't know. The the combination of appeal, maybe uh, people looking for things to do after the holidays. Um, I have to say that the uh, drawing is cute, and it's a variant of... uh, of cute kitten with bulging eyes, drawings that one can find on the web.
1: This is because people want to play against something cute. What do you love about chess?
2: Well, I love the uh, the, uh, fact that the game has personality, that you can get emotional feel from positions. Uh, Of course, the challenge of playing um, against an opponent who is devising strategies and the skill with which you can uh, uh, execute them. I was a uh, star junior player in the 1970s. I was U.S. Junior champion, first equal in 1977.
1: So, how has chess changed during that time? Like, I would imagine that when people first started playing online, that was was that a bit of a no go? Did people approve of that?
2: Well, it's uh, odd. I have to say that although I play fantasy football and baseball online, I've never been much for playing chess online. I like the personal contact. so My you, last
1: big, you draw yeah. the line there.
2: Well, yeah, it's, I have uh, many other things that I do.
1: Hmm. Okay, this is so interesting, though, but yet clearly people love playing chess online. Is there, is there a similarity to people's games? Does everybody have play with their own personality? Like, how do you develop strategy?
2: That's right. Yeah, you learn. The chess has an amazing literature of books of all kinds, instructional books books of past games with annotations explaining them. Uh, That was a great fascination for me as a child, especially.
1: How good are you?
2: I'm an international master, um, uh, ranked 2372 by the International Chess Federation, though my last major rated tournament was the Canadian Open 12 years ago.
1: Okay, so I'm going to guess that you're very good. If you're ranked in the top 2,500 around the world, Kenneth, Uh
2: Just outside the top 3,000, I think. I was in the top 500 once.
1: What does it take to get there?
2: A lot of practice, more than I was uh, willing to put in because I was also interested in an academic career, doing exactly what I'm doing, um, uh, competitive play, um, barnstorming around the world, That in particular is apparently how the U.S. junior player Hans Niemann improved by finding places that had in-person chess during the pandemic, in 2021 especially.
1: Wait a minute. Isn't there like a huge controversy with Hans Niemann?
2: Yes, that uh, has also been occupying quite a lot of my time.
1: Doesn't it surprise you there's so many headlines having to do with just playing chess these days?
2: (laughs) Well, it's great to see. I mean, there's the adage that no publicity is bad publicity. Uh, I like that a lot of people care about it, and uh, it's great to see a new generation uh, attracted by the beauty that exists in the game.
1: Do you have any advice for me, Kenneth, because chess is just one of those things that I've never fully kind of grasped or gotten a hold of. Is it too late for me to learn?
2: No, it's never too late to learn. Um, there's always a an initial run-up of uh, improvement that one can make, and uh, that can be exhilarating.
1: So what do I have to do? Just devote myself to it?
2: Yeah, uh, get some nice books and uh, I don't uh, play online. I guess uh, online didn't exist when, uh, when I was a uh, developing player. Um, but really go to a chess club or a human chess tournament and uh, see the atmosphere, talk with people. That's the way to improve.
1: All right, I'll give it a shot. I don't know. It's been a long time since I've tried to do this. But Kenneth, thank you so much for your time this morning.
2: Okay. Thank you, too.
1: That's Kenneth Regan, a professor of theoretical computer science and engineering at the University of Buffalo, talking about what's been going on at chess.com. Yes, chess.com. Huge website. It's actually crashed. They had one of their busiest months ever, 40% more than they had in any month of the company's history because of a new chess bot named Mittens. Chess is one of those things I've never quite gotten a hold of, and I would welcome your advice on learning how to play. Simi at CKNW.com. This is Mornings with Simi. I've undoubtedly heard about dry January. Maybe you were doing that, and I say were because maybe you've already fallen off the wagon on that. Well, the Canadian Cancer Society would like you to think about something else. They are challenging you to a dry February, and for a very good cause, too. Let's find out more about it. Lynn Morat is with us now, spokesperson for the Canadian Cancer Society. Good morning, Lynn.
3: Good morning, Timmy. How are you?
1: I am good. Thank you. So tell me, why do you want Canadians to think about a dry February?
3: So Dry Feb is a national fundraiser that challenges Canadians to go alcohol-free for the month of February while raising funds for the Canadian Cancer Society. So basically it helps you get healthy while raising funds for an important cause.
1: Okay, so why? what is the link between cancer then and alcohol? Why use the, the topic of a dry February to raise money for the Cancer Society?
3: So research is increasingly showing that alcohol is simply not good for your health. Alcohol is classified as a group one carcinogen. And drinking any type of alcohol increases your risk of at least nine different types of cancer.
1: That's pretty harsh, though. Do you think that message is getting through to people?
3: Well, research shows that over 40% of Canadians are not aware that alcohol consumption increases the risk of cancer. And that's why a campaign like Dry Feb is important. One, it helps you raise awareness on the risk between alcohol and cancer. Two, it helps you get healthy. And three, you can raise money for an important cause.
1: Okay, so how do they do this? How do we participate?
3: So participating in DryFed is easy. Simply register at dryfed.ca and collect donations from your friends and family. So you can register, make and receive donations, run your own profile page, share your status on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and every day and every dollar will make a meaningful difference in the lives of people affected by cancer.
1: Okay, and this might be for people who even just want to continue on from what they've been doing in January, right?
3: Exactly, so this is really a lifestyle change. So Dry Feb encourages people to go dry dry for the month of February. However, it is also something to think about in the future. Now that we know that alcohol increases our cancer risk, we really need to think or rethink our relationship with
1: alcohol. Okay, so what's the website? Where can people find out more?
3: Yes, you head to dryfeb.ca. You register there, and that's it. It's, uh, it's very simple, very straightforward. You go dry for the month of February. You encourage your family, your coworkers, your friends to go dry with you, and you encourage them to donate for a good cause.
1: All right, sounds good. I hope people do it. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you, Simi. Have a nice day. You too. That's Lynn Murad, spokesperson for the Canadian Cancer Society. I love this survey that they, that they did, to the talks to Canadians about their alcohol consumption. 47% of people said they generally feel better when they're consuming less alcohol. And yet still people do, right? 36% said knowing the link between alcohol consumption and cancer risk makes them want to re-examine their relationship with alcohol. Now, if that sounds like something you would want to do, maybe dry Feb is the thing for you. Maybe you've been thinking about it during dry January. Good time to, I think, get on board. This is Mornings with Simi. So this week, we have spent some time talking about the impact of artificial intelligence on places like colleges and universities. But you know what? It's bigger than that. In fact, your next job interview may be as a result of AI, because more and more companies are using what's known as applicant tracking systems to oversee their hiring process. So you may get a job because an artificial intelligence platform decided that you were the one who could succeed in that job. So how does this work? And most importantly, what are the downsides to this? Joining us now is Joseph Fuller, Professor of Management Practice and the co-lead of Managing the Future of Work Initiative at the Harvard School of Business. Thank you so much for joining us this morning.
4: My pleasure, Simi.
1: How common is this type of technology right now being used by companies?
4: It's nearly universal among all large companies. And increasingly, companies rely on uh, so-called SaaS-based services. You might be familiar with companies like Indeed that Mm. um, even small and medium-sized businesses can
1: uh,
4: use in their hiring uh, program.
1: So how does it work?
4: Well, The the front end of the process is, of course, for an applicant to come in and fill out their qualifications and answer a number of questions about their background and and experiences. And that data is washed through a series of uh, algorithmically driven uh, evaluative uh, filters so um, generally speaking, there are two forms. One is a filter that would allow a applicants uh, to continue in the process or wash them out entirely. A very common thing there would be a filter for criminal conviction or for not having a certain level of academic attainment. Then the remaining candidates are ranked by the AI based on things like are there keywords in their description of their work background that match the keywords that the employer is looking for in terms of a proxy for experience? Or it might be their grade point average in school, or it might be how many years of work experience they have, things like that.
1: Okay, but don't people exaggerate on their resumes and things like that, Joseph?
4: Uh, certainly. And in fact, um, uh, there's pretty strong data that men exaggerate a lot more than women, but uh, uh, the the, uh, the essentially what the uh, this AI is doing is taking what the applicant submitted and evaluating it, and that reduces the number of people who get considered by a human being actually looking at paperwork by a huge percentage. And it's really at that stage, Simi, when, when, a, when a hiring manager they're called is looking at a resume that you might start doing reference checks or, or uh, calling the registrar to school and, and uh, confirming graduation or things like that.
1: But the thing is, you might be missing out on people because you've already let AI decide who you're going to see, Right.
4: Yes, that is a a very significant problem. 90% of the companies that we survey acknowledged that the, the process they use does exclude qualified candidates. And what we see consistently is that companies elect to make their process as efficient as possible from their point of view. So they want to go from a big Uh, file of applicants to 300, down to three or four people who will actually get consideration. And in that process, they winnow out people who had those three or four other candidates not been uh, deemed superior to them uh, by the AI who would have been viewed as qualified.
1: Okay. And so what else is the AI potentially missing here?
4: It tends to miss, it, it, it isn't intelligent. It's only as intelligent as the people who uh, made decisions, essentially kind of toggling uh, on, off, or uh, count this factor heavily and this one less heavily. It tends to miss anything that is anomalous. I'll give, give you an example. Uh, in about 50% of instances, The AI will exclude someone from consideration. So just eliminate them from the pool if they have a gap in their work history of more than six months. Now, you can say, why would a company do that? Well, maybe that person doesn't have a lot of get up and go, or doesn't have uh, friends or people they've worked with historically who hear they're available and say, oh, we've got to get. We've got to get semi, you know, in our organization, or they could be worried about skills being, uh, you know, uh, uh, diminishing or, or whatever. But you, you can have a problem pregnancy and be out of the workforce for six months or have a, uh, you know, a parent or another loved one who's ill or dying. Or uh, in in the U.S. there's the issue of military spouses. We have a large military and uh, installations all over the country, you get transferred from North Carolina to Hawaii, moving your family might take you out of the workforce. So it, it isn't good at subtlety. It, doesn't, it isn't good at uh, understanding really anything other than absolute values. Right. We're looking for someone with five years of experience. We're looking for someone with a university degree. We're looking for someone who's worked in our industry in this type of position.
1: But just like, those gaps are sometimes the kind of character building events that would lead to a potentially great employee.
4: Absolutely, and 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 those subtleties get washed out. Now, the 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 thing is, of course, Simi, that any hiring decision is a relative decision, not an absolute decision. What do I mean by that? It's I'm going to contrast the attributes, background, experiences of the candidates that emerge from this process and compare them to each other to say, who's my first choice? And so the the fact that the technology will exclude people who are qualified is a reflection not merely of, of the, the shortcomings of the technology, but also that the companies are trying to find someone who's as close to an ideal, perfect fit as they can possibly describe.
1: Right, so for the companies, then I guess is the incentive here. Listen, it's more efficient for them. Yeah, they may not get the perfect employee, but that's okay because they don't really have time to find the perfect employee.
4: Yes, and and um, companies are worried about this, but what they what they do to respond is try to refine the way the the AI works. Uh, it's particularly hard, for example, for companies to. Uh, increase their diversity if they rely solely on the AI because it's against the law to say, well, you know, are you of, are you an African American, are you a uh, Latinx, are you uh, uh, LBGTQ? So they they, um, they it, there are additional. Pressures these companies are under that makes the implications of these systems maybe a, a more of a false economy than, than uh, actually a um, a really good way to go about staffing your company.
1: If you like, if you care about diversity, which I know a lot of companies do, understanding that there's a lot of underrepresented communities out there that are going to make amazing employees that haven't had a chance. It seems to me this AI is just going to bake that into the system.
4: Well that is a concern, and um, the the where companies try to address that is where they go to hire so if they if they're going to certain cities that would have uh, higher percentages of minority communities going to educational institutions that have high percentage of 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 minority applicants are recruiting from Uh, social entrepreneurs or not-for-profits that are specifically working to advance certain minorities' economic interests.
1: Right. So is this just the way of the future then, Joseph? Is it just going to constantly get tweaked, perhaps, to address some of these issues?
4: I think so. Um, Now, there are certain jurisdictions in the United States, including California and New York City, which are Looking into this, trying to put limitations on it, uh, stipulating uh, that, that companies have to take steps to make sure that these systems are not discriminatory, uh, which is a very high standard to meet, uh, given what we were just talking about. But um, I think we're going to see AI in improving in terms of how it operates and, and how sophisticated it is, penetrate. Not just the hiring process, but the promotion process, uh, the learning process and reskilling process in companies, uh, and and also uh, the process of allocating work to people. Mm. Uh, one thing you see uh, now uh, with companies like Gloat is it has the ability to essentially look at the inventory of skills in a company and say, well, we've got this project Uh, over here in the uh, Eastern Division. And we've got someone in our Western Division who really has got what looks like a perfect skills match for that project. We'll assign that person, who currently works at a different part of the company, to this special and important project. So the the AI is is penetrating lots of areas uh, uh, that are not, uh, uh, you know, processes or uh, automation or uh, order order entry or things like that. It's, it's going to uh, penetrate all elements of human resource management.
1: Wow, so interesting. Joseph, thank you for the chat.
4: Oh, my pleasure, Simi.
1: Appreciate your time. Joseph Fuller, professor of management practice uh, at the Harvard School of Business, talking about AI. So if you rely on your charm, uh, it sounds to me like there's that's going to be some trouble ahead if you're looking for a job, and that's how you've relied on it in the past. If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW.com. This is Mornings with Simmy. You've probably heard in the news stories about how the city of Vancouver is considering building more multiplexes on single-family lots, homes that would have multiple units, say between three and six. There are a lot of questions about this, but what I heard this referred to as the missing middle in housing I also had some questions, as in, does this mean that families could live in these units? And what would they look out look like? Well, joining us now is Brian Billingsley, Principal Architect at B Squared Architecture. Brian, thanks so much for being with us.
5: Hi, Sydney. Good to talk to you.
1: Well, you've been working on this. So what would one of these look like in your mind?
5: Um, so we, we actually have one just starting construction right now in the County Corridor on a 50-foot lot. And yeah, it's a little bit taller than the neighboring buildings, but those are uh, one story buildings. So they, they don't really, you know, match the sort of typical Vancouver house anyways, but yeah, it it looks, you know, pretty much just like a a large single family house. It's got four doors at the front and then there's two doors at the back. Right. So um, everybody gets a front door. Everybody has kind of ground level access and uh, you know, it's, it's not an unwieldy looking thing. It's, the maximum building height that we do for, this is under um, RM8A, so it's 37 feet tall maximum height. And uh, I think what's being proposed for this, you know, for the sort of missing middle, this new um, kind of bylaw that we're going to pass for the RS zones is 35 feet. So it's it's really close, right, and sort of the approximation of what you'd see.
1: Okay, so this is for a 50-foot lot, though, right? Like, that's what we're talking about. Not a it would, not a 33-foot lot.
5: That's right. I mean, I, I don't know what it's going to look like on a 33-foot lot because you have this, like you still have to have, like, four-foot side yards on either side yeah. pretty much just to kind of get the wood through their, you know, access and stuff like that. So it's going to be a fairly tall, skinny building, I guess. But, yeah, like, you know, because your building would end up being only 25 feet wide, right?
1: So... so if you're talking about a fifty foot lot and a six unit multiplex on there, how big yeah. are these though, Brian? Like could a family live in one of these?
5: Oh yeah. So so like the front four are two bedroom units and I think they're in the range of kind of like a thousand square feet for a for, uh, for two bedroom because there's stairs and all sorts of stuff that just gets sucked up on it, right? But so at the back we have these very large uh three bedroom unit with an extra den down below. And that's I think it's dialed in and around uh 1,700 square feet, I think. So, I mean, they're fairly good size,
1: right? So do you think this is something that once people see it, uh, you know, they, they'll realize that, okay, maybe I could do this, but they would still have to be relatively affordable.
5: Yeah. I mean, the, 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 this is what I say is like the city actually did a really good job on trying to make, uh, like as, a pre, as, a, as a requirement for the upload density of the RM8 and the Cambie Corridor, They uh, made sure that 45% of the units are between 900 and 1,100 square feet, which is, you know, one way of controlling costs because, like, nobody can really control, you know, building costs. Inflation goes up and down and building costs go nuts sometimes. And so you, 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 like, those are things you can't factor in. But I think that the front end there, if they factor in size and they factor in sort of like, you know, 25% of those in, in the RM8 have to be three bedrooms as well, which make sure that you're actually having like a full family sort of size house or or home, right? So So, people you think
1: should just reserve judgment, maybe see a couple of them first?
5: Yeah, I think so. I mean, this is what I'd tell you is, and this is kind of nice, is that the project has been really well received. I think all the units are sold in that little sixplex. So that's a, that's a, you know, a a pretty good start, right? Like it's, it's obviously people think it's, it's something that they want, which is, you know, in a market that's kind of tough right now, I think it's it's kind of it's, it speaks for some the kind of alternatives that people are looking for for housing.
1: Yeah. yeah, I would like to see this. I'll have to take a look. Brian, thank you.
5: Yeah, good talking to you. Thanks yeah. a lot.
1: This is Mornings with Simi. Body-worn cameras are becoming increasingly common in police forces right across the country. In fact, the RCMP is in the process of kind of rolling this out. They have a body cam program that will be uh, put into place for cities that use the RCMP everywhere. But they're not going to come cheap. And now municipalities that have the RCMP in their communities are saying Ottawa needs to help them cover the cost of this. So how expensive is it going to be? Joining us now is Craig Hodge, who's a Coquitlam City Councillor and member of the Port Coquitlam Joint Police Detachment Advisory Committee. Thank you so much for being with us this morning.
6: Uh, Good morning, Sari.
1: Now, where is this program at in terms of implementation?
6: Well, I also, uh, my main role at UBCM is that I co-chair the uh, RCMP Contract Management Committee. So uh, my committee uh, looks at all the costs uh, associated with, uh, with RCMP in uh, in british columbia and, and 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 how those costs are uh, managed and dealt with by local municipalities so we rely on information that comes from uh, from ottawa they uh, they make the the purchasing decisions they make the uh, imp- you know the implementation decisions and uh, and they're responsible for the operational issues so really our concern is is that how those costs are going to be passed down to uh, to local municipalities uh, the prime minister in uh, 2020 announced that uh, the RCMP was going to be moving uh, to, uh, to equip their frontline officers with body cams. Uh, those uh, They began a pilot project to test uh, some of the cameras. Uh, we are told that originally thought the rollout was going to be in 2022, 20, early 2023. Um, I've, to my knowledge, I don't think they've even decided which uh, cameras they're going to, uh, to purchase for their officers. So we know it's coming, but we just don't know how quickly and we don't know what those cost are going to be. We hear numbers in the area of about $3,000 per officer. And uh, these are ongoing operational uh, costs.
1: And these are something that the communities, the municipalities would have to pay themselves?
6: Yeah, well, as as the contract is written, what happens is that uh, all the costs of the RCMP, the majority of the costs are are passed through to uh, local municipalities uh, through their contracts. So and we it's it's a one contract from the RCMP standpoint, and uh, we're assigned our portion of the cost based on the number of officers in our in our detachment so this, this is no different than uh, uh, you know new firearms that are purchased for the uh, for the members uh, cars, uh, you know the new contract right. that was just negotiated recently, so all these costs come down to us, which eventually get passed on to property taxes.
1: Oh boy, okay, so what are some of the cost pressures here? How could this impact some of these communities?
6: Well, in most communities, the cost of policing can represent 25% of a local budget or more. So uh, these costs can be significant, uh, particularly when you're facing a number of them. As I mentioned, uh, we recently uh, had to absorb a 22% increase in pay uh, that was uh, based on the renewal of a five-year contract with them, uh, with the RCMP members. And, and I think for the most part, I think uh, you know, all of our communities are very happy with the service that we get. From the uh, members of the RCMP and from the local detachments, but these are, are coming with significant costs, and these costs are, are rising at a time that municipalities are facing other cost pressures.
1: So, what are what are the consequences? Here? Like, what can you do? Are there negotiations with the federal government on this?
6: No. Short answer is no. the The federal government has made the decision. Uh, they believe that uh, this is going to improve accountability, transparency, and trust in, in policing. and And we don't dispute uh, that. What we're concerned about is that uh, these costs are are going to be determined by uh, what equipment is purchased and uh, and how the and how the digital evidence is managed. This has a potential for ongoing cost to, to manage this data. Some detachments are looking at hiring one, possibly two new people just to manage the, uh, the evidence, make sure that it's kept it secure, that it's available when it's needed. So there are, there are costs beyond the cameras itself that we don't know exactly what those costs will be until the equipment's implemented.
1: Okay, and you don't know when that will be?
6: We, we are told that it's coming soon. Uh, originally, when this was announced, the prime minister said that uh, they would pick up the cost for the first for the next five years. But we're two and a half years into that announcement. Um, and we still haven't seen the cameras. So uh, we're, we're sort of losing the funding to the clock on this one.
1: Right. So could this end up, do you think, are you concerned that this could end up being sticker shock?
6: um I, I think our big concern is that uh, yes it could be sticker shop more importantly uh like many of these things the costs are unknown and uh you know we're hoping that we will get enough notice that we can start to prepare them you know for this in our budget certainly port Coquitlam had that discussion uh, just recently uh when they were told what they should start to prepare for in next year's and budget and the years after so uh, the numbers are starting to come out i think uh, you know municipalities and councils uh, across the province are beginning to look and sort of say okay this is this is the next one that's coming at us
1: has the policy for how these are going to be used has that been implemented because i guess there has to be a whole a protocol for this right
6: oh there will be a protocol there'll be training involved uh, you know i think these things will all be set through, uh, through the RCMP at a national level. Um, so, you know, at this point, I'm not, I'm not as worried about how it will be implemented, other than, you know, I have full faith that the RCMP is doing their due diligence and will we'll come up with a good program. The, uh, the concern that we have is what will that cost and what will be involved in it and how will that be absorbed by, uh, by local governments. So we're certainly hoping that the federal government will, uh, will pay part of the share of this and pay a greater share, particularly in the early stages when when these cameras are being implemented.
1: We'll see what happens. Craig, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you so much, to me. That is Craig Hodge, a Coquitlam City Councillor and member of the Port Coquitlam Joint Police Detachment Advisory Committee. So the decision was made in Ottawa that all RCMP members would have body-worn cameras. I think, you know, the majority of people would say, yeah, that's a good idea, right? It's good for evidence collection, it's just good so that everybody can see what happened in a situation in case there's concerns about that. But the cost is a concern to municipalities who will have to foot the bill for those cameras, and they're saying they still don't know what the cost is. Found a way in, simmy at cknw.com or you can call or text our buzz line 604 331 2899. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time for the year of the rabbit, and it is time to celebrate, because after a two-year pause during the pandemic, the 48th annual Spring Festival Parade is coming back to Chinatown in Vancouver. It's happening this Sunday. It's expected to attract tens of thousands of visitors. And you know what? It's going to be a pretty big deal. So what else can you get out there and celebrate for Lunar New Year We're going to talk about that right now. We have a couple of guests. We have Carol Lee with us, who's chair of the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation. Good morning, Carol. Good morning, Timmy. And we have April Liu with us, who's a director of education and programming at the Chinatown Storytelling Centre. Good morning, April. Good morning. Now, Carol, let me start with you here. What does the return of this parade mean for Chinatown?
0: Well, I think it's a big deal. I think many people know it's been a a tough few years for Chinatown. Um, I think it was tough for everybody. Uh, during COVID, but I think particularly tough for Chinatown. So we haven't had the parade for a couple of years, and I think people are really excited about it. And, you know, this is the year of the rabbit. Um, and it, I think timing couldn't be better because apparently the rabbit signifies longevity, peace, and prosperity. And uh, it's predicted to, to overall be a year of hope. So let's hope so.
1: Leah, let's hope so on that one. So, April, what <laughs> do we need to know about the year of the rabbit? What is so special about this?
7: Well, you know, know, Lunar New Year Year is a time time for for renewal. renewal. It's It's a time time for families and community community to gather. And And we're so so excited because we haven't been able to gather in this way for, you know, most of the pandemic. So we would love to see everyone come back to Chinatown this weekend.
1: (laughs) That's so true. So what kind of things will people learn by participating in some of these events?
7: Well, we have a whole weekend of events coming up um, in addition to the, you know, the parade. So, you know, on Saturday, we have a talk with Trevor Lai. He's an amazing animator, illustrator. He'll be signing his children's books here. Um, He's also the designer of the Canucks Lunar New Year jersey. Um, On parade day, we're going to open up our exhibition. We're going to be free admission for everyone from 11 to 3. We're going to have a Cantonese opera uh, performer in full costume as the god of wealth, passing out candy in our lobby. And we're going to have craft tables for all ages where people can come and paint a a lucky rabbit, and also a giant bunny that
1: people can take a selfie with um, in our space. That's, That's all so free cute. to the public. That is yeah. so cute. What um, What are the qualities of a rabbit, then, April? Because, like, I'm a pig, right? And I like I always yeah. look up what that qual <laughs> what the qualities of that pig means in the year of the pig. But what are the qualities of the rabbit?
7: You know, my understanding is that the rabbit is a peace loving creature. <laughs> they're very lucky. They're very intelligent, but. Primarily, they like, you know, they like to have, they're the the peacekeepers. They like harmony. So this is supposed to be a really good beer for everyone.
1: Okay. Harmony is good. So, Carol, do you feel like this is a a new beginning, perhaps, like turning the page here for Chinatown?
0: I think so. I mean, there's a lot of really positive things, you know, beyond just this parade, which we're we're all very excited about. But, you know, there was just a motion at City Hall to... To um, you know, fund uh, a program for uplifting Chinatown. So I think this is really a new beginning. I think that's what we are all you know very excited about. You know, and another thing that's going on: the Canucks' their fifth annual Lunar New Year um, Canucks game is a Tuesday, the twenty fourth, and they'll be having a lot of family activities. And it is really nice um, that some of the proceeds um, from the merchandise that they're going to be selling will go to Eliminate Hate and the Chinatown Foundation. So I think. There's lots of groups, people that are out there, I would say, cheering for Chinatown and, and hoping that you know the, the future is is brighter.
1: Can both of you, I'll start with you, April, on this one. Can you give us an idea of what the Lunar New Year symbolizes? What are some of the traditions that go with that in the community?
7: Absolutely. Uh, like I was mentioning, it's a time of renewal. It's it's the most important year for many people across asia who celebrate the lunar new year and it's a time where you gather with family so there's the you know reunion feast that happens on the, the eve of lunar new year and the idea is in, in the build up to the lunar new year you clean out your house you pay off your debts you settle any you know problems you might have it's a reset right so and then on the first day of the lunar new year you put on new clothes your your house is beautifully decorated with fresh you know, decor or in, nice and sparkly clean and so you can welcome guests. And then you spend usually the next two weeks or so, this whole Lunar New Year season is celebrated where you go around, you visit family, you visit friends, um, and, you, you know, you start your new year off
1: with a really great start, lots of positive energy. I love that. Now, Carol, yeah. what about some of the food traditions? What do we eat at this time of year?
0: Well, you know, it's, there's a, a these are standard things where we would had chicken, uh, and usually, it's it's interesting the way they pr- prepare it. It's uh, it's chicken. It's a whole chicken uh, with um, a head and a tail. We also have um, fish. So um, fish is also important. And in, in the preparation of that, is also um, with a a full fish, a, a full whole fish. Um, they have different things like sticky rice, and um, sometimes, if you're very lucky, it will be a a whole roast pig. So. So those are some of the th- things that we eat, and they all have some sort of symbolism attached to it.
1: Right. Do you also eat, say, longevity noodles at this time of year, too?
0: Absolutely. Longevity noodles. You have the longevity buns. So it is a big feast. I know that our family this year, um, we're going to be having our Chinese New Year Eve dinner at the Florida in Chinatown. So uh, we're all very excited about it, and it is the big dinner of the year for us all.
1: Oh, that's going to be exciting. Now, April, are all the restaurants, do you think, around in Chinatown? Is this a good time to check some of them out?
7: Absolutely. And actually, on January 28th, we have a Heritage Food Tasting canto Pop and K-Pop night where we've invited local chefs to make specialty dishes just for Lunar New Year. So we hope everyone will come. And you know, this is the perfect night to come and get a sampling of everything. And also, we're going to have People, we're going to be sharing the stories of each dish, why they're significant, why we eat them for Lunar New Year. So if you want to learn more about this topic, come by uh, to the Storytelling Center on January 28th in the evening, and you can get our t- tickets for that on our website.
1: Oh, that sounds like so much fun. Okay, so then, Carol, yeah. when it comes to Sunday, then, the parade coming back, where is it going to be, and where should people go?
0: So um, it starts at 11 o'clock at the Millennium Gate on uh, Pender Street. And it's about a, you know 1.1 kilometers, so it goes all the way up Pender Street to Gore, and then it wraps down back uh, Kiefer and ends up to Abbott. So uh, we hope people will come out and, uh, and join in the festivities.
1: And you know what? It looks like it's going to be sunny, too.
0: Oh, how lucky.
1: Exactly. How <laughs> off to lucky. a good start. <laughs> off to a good start for the Year of the Rabbit. Listen, thanks to both of you for being with us today.
7: Thanks, Thanks so much, Thank much Thank you.
1: Appreciate that. Carol Lee is chair of the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation. April Liu is the director of education and programming at the Chinatown Storytelling Centre pretty happy and pumped as a lot of people are that the uh, Lunar New Year Parade is back hasn't been around right there was a two-year pandemic pause so this is the 48th annual Spring Festival Parade it is on Sunday so it's January 22nd it is at 11 o'clock you heard Carol mention it starts at the Millennium Gate there it's about a one kilometer long route and they are expecting tens of thousands of visitors to come down and check that out and I think Chinatown could really use that right now it's going to be great and And yes, taking a look at the weather forecast for Sunday, it will be chilly, but it will be sunny. It looks like sun and a high of five degrees in store for us on the Sunday. It's kind of sandwiched between two rainy days on Saturday and Monday. So that's good. Good start. So you can go downtown and check that out.